Hi, so a quick note about today's episode. It's with Terry Butcher. He is a painter. He is a pilot. He's an engineer. Um, He also happens to have been born in 1933. And he is a fascinating man to talk to. And I'm really proud, I guess, and privileged to bring you his story today. Um... There's a lot that we had to cover. We spoke for a very long time. So this episode has been edited um, here and there. If it doesn't all knit together seamlessly, that is entirely my fault in the editing process. Um, But I'm certain that you will find something to take away from this. We forget that a lot of what Terry experienced is still within living memory. So huge thanks go to him for giving me the honour to record this interview. Hello, Terry. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Okay, I think this is recording okay, so we'll, get, we'll give it a shot, if that's all right. All right, okay, mate. Lovely. Um, Terry, I don't know your surname. What is it? Butcher. Butcher? Butcher, yeah. B-U-T-C-H-E-R. Nice. Anyone in the family a butcher? Um, yeah, we, we, we were pretty widespread all over England. Oh. Every village you went into had a had a family butchers. Right. So that's where you that's do you reckon that's the genesis of your <laughs> no, name? <laughs> we're, we're basically my lot. We came from Essex. Right. Okay. So um, I'm just going to do a little bit here about you know what people are going to expect from this conversation and how we met. So you and I yeah. met at Reading Oddfellows. Yes. And I told my story. And then you came up and told me a bit about yours, which I thought was fascinating and deserves to be heard by a lot more people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah things were a lot more difficult then, you know. So it, te- uh, yeah, yeah, as, as I said before, you, you were considered a bit of a freak just to be left-handed, let alone a cockney born in a depression in 1933 in a slum. So, And that's, that's where we sort of start when you came to speak to me. So... Yeah, tell me about it. So you were born in 1933? Yes, indeed. In... And uh, I was born to Albert and Doris Butcher. My father was still an apprentice in his final year as a printer bookbinder. Yeah. Um, and he actually worked 60 hours a week, which was more or less an accepted working week. Yeah. Um you know, it, it, it was fantastic. Oh, just after the war, when it went down to 56 hours. Yeah. <laughs> you got Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon off. Wow. Um, but that's the way things were at the time. It was hard. Yeah. Um, when I... Uh, let's try and get back right to the start. Um, the only green space that we had was known as Wanstead Flats. Yeah. It's still green. It's a part of the uh, the old green belt yeah. around that part of Essex. And uh, it's still, uh, although it's been largely built on, there is still greenery there. Yeah. But its attraction was a large ornamental pond where they used to sail boats, oh. sailing boats. And the kids, we could go fishing yeah. for tiddlers. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, the only way to get there was to walk. Yeah. Which would be about a mile and a half from my house where yeah. we lived. Um, 
on, on that walk, I would be, at the time, three and a half. Yeah. And my kid brother would be about 18 months old. Yeah. In a pushchair pushed by my dad. Yeah. Now, when we got the Wanstead Flats on this particular day, and I assume it would have been a Sunday. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been at work. Yeah. Um, when we got to Wanstead Flats, a little aeroplane flew overhead, a little biplane, and I can distinctly remember it towing a banner, and although I couldn't read, I could see the badge and I could see the lettering, and later in life I found it was BP Petrol. Yeah. BP Petroleum. Wow. And uh, my dad explained to me that there was a man inside the aeroplane pulling the banner. And at that point, at three and a half, I was going to be the man pulling the banner. And or at least I was going to be the man in the aeroplane. And it's just, it's such a beautiful image of, I don't know, I feel like I can picture that, that, you know... It, it's a case yeah. of um, a target being set at yeah. three and a half years old that you actually achieved. So tell me then what happened. With, so you've seen your aeroplane... And you're like, right, I, I'm going to in that plane. Except, um, well, you were three and a half. What happened between you being three and a half, and, a half yeah. and getting into that plane? What, what what was your journey to get from one, well, to well, get from the feet on the ground to up that, in the sky? At that point on, I never thought of anything else. Well, mostly anything else, but I never forgot I wanted to be in that aeroplane. Yeah. Even growing up, I wanted to be the man in that aeroplane. I didn't know what it entailed, um, you know, how I was going to do it at that time, no idea. Yeah. It was just a, a determination that I was going to be the man in the aeroplane. Uh, and I set that target right the way through my childhood, even through the war years. It, and in the war years, it was reinforced yeah. from the bombing. Uh, that I was most definitely going to be the man in the aeroplane to hand back to Germany some of the bloody things that they handed out to me. Yeah. And I couldn't do anything about it at the time. And, um, and so tell me... It, 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 it was a target that I was determined to reach. I go, it, 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 you're just going to do it. You don't know how, but you're going to do it. And and tell me, because the thing that struck me was you you talked to me about how your schooling was interrupted by the war and how oh, much yes, you missed out on. Yes. Describe that to me. Well, I, I went to school at four years old, mm. and by sheer chance, the, the infant teacher that I had was the same teacher that taught my mother. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so there was a, a sort of rapport there between my mum and... Uh, going to see her old teacher and taking her child up with her. Oh. And uh, at the time, most families used to live one on top of the other. I mean, my family was contained in about three streets, yeah. um, which were no more than a few hundred yards apart. Yeah. And uh, at that school was also uh, two of my cousins, mm. one who was a year older than me, Mm. She was in the infants, but in a different class. And uh, one was Dennis, her brother, who was two years older than her. And yeah. Dennis was a big boy, and he was in the big boys' class. Oh. You know? And, and you, <laughs> but, described, you described it as, this, like you said, it was an East End slum. 
Um, what would that be like? How would you describe that? Uh, let's say that um, it was a typical East London, uh, East London uh, area mm. where the most prominent person that you'd uh, talk about, probably, or know, was mm. Uncle Reg. <laughs> Oh, Uncle Reg yeah. was Cockney rhyming staying for making a pledge. Right. In other words, everyone knew the pawn shop. Right. Ah, I see. Wow. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's a fact that I can remember as a child women during the week walking along the road with just rags on their feet because the shoes were in the pop shop. Right, blimey. They only came out on a you know, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Um, you'd get, if you had the money to get them back, yeah. you wore them in and they were back here, and they were back with Uncle Reg on Monday. Wow. Yeah. Um, I can also remember a road that we lived in. Uh, we lived one side at number 16. Mm. My grandmother lived the other side, almost directly opposite at number 15. Yeah. Um. I had uh, an uncle, an elderly uh, great-uncle, actually, who lived at number 48. Mm. That was way up the road. I mean, that was that was the posh end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a posh end because he had a bush in the front garden. Wow. <laughs> if you could afford a bush in your front garden, you'd live in the high life. You could even have a front garden. <laughs> all, we, all we had was a brick wall. Wow. Um, the it, Actually, it's given me a lot of scope for childhood memories and painting them. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether they, Karen mentioned it, but I'm, I'm an artist, actually. Ah. Uh, yeah, I've been painting now for over 85 years. Wow. Um, when you found me, uh, uh, you know, when I was old enough to hold it, I was holding a pencil or uh, a brush of some kind and never let it go. Wow. So I've been painting now, and I still do, every, virtually every day. Yeah. Um, and I have a theme of transport through the ages, different means of transport. Yeah. Um, of all kinds, land, sea and air. But a couple of years ago, this suddenly got coupled with transport that I remember in my childhood. Mm. So we're back, we've got that plane. I wanted to, you started to talk about um, your schooling. So your mum's old teacher is teaching you. But yes, then, first, yeah. yeah. Miss Colebrook, I even remember her wow. name. Wow. <laughs> Miss she... Colebrook. And to me, she was actually a very old lady, you know, mm. very old Miss Colebrook. Mm. But those were the days when teachers weren't allowed to be married. Yeah, blimey. Wow. No, if, if a teacher wanted to get married, she had she to leave stop. the profession. Yeah. Same as nurses. Yeah. Um, it... It, it was a weird old weird old world, I mean, totally unacceptable today. Yeah. Wow. But tell tell me about what happened to your education, because you told me you you lost, like, four years 
1938, um, we had the phony war. Okay. Um, that meant that uh, we had a year in which most young mothers and children yeah. were evacuated out to different places for safety. Oh, I see. Um, it was called the phony war. Mm. Um, this was before the war was actually declared. This was 1938, and it was right. a precaution. Yeah. Uh, my mother and three children, my sister then was uh, a babe in arms, only a year old. Yeah. Um, my younger brother is two years younger than I. Yeah. And I would have been five. Yeah. So um, uh, you, you can understand that she had her hands full. Yeah. With several other mothers, I yeah. mean, she wasn't on her own. Mm. Several other mothers with young children were also evacuated with her, and they were evacuated to Norfolk. Ah, yep. And um, a place called uh, uh, a place called Crimley. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've looked it up. It's a small town. Yeah. Probably a lot smaller in those days. Yeah. But anyway, um, one of my vivid memories of that <laughs> was a group of mothers and kids walking down the road and every one of them was crying. Oh. And I don't know why, because I wasn't. <laughs> oh, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what they were crying about. Yeah. But when the mother started crying, all the rest of the kids joined in. But yeah. I, didn't. You know, yeah. I, was, I was just completely bemused. Yeah. Um, probably, you know, I just didn't understand what it was all around. No. Uh, anyway, I think we were away for about three months, three or four months, mm. and nothing had happened. Mm. So they all started going back to London. Yeah. You know, just a few at a time. Yeah. We finally came home. Um, when we got home, uh, things went back to normal. We nearly went to school, and then uh, the war started, September the 3rd. Yeah. The war started. We declared war against Germany, and immediately most of the schools were closed. Everywhere was closed. Yeah. Cinemas, uh, every, every, because nobody knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Everyone was sick, scared of gas attacks, and we were all issued with gas masks. Yeah. There's another story there. I'll tell you some other time. Mm. Poor old <laughs> mum struggling to, to get a gas mask uh, on my younger brother. Yeah. And uh, my sister was only a year old, mm. and she was stuck um, with too young to go into a baby pumper. Yeah which was a, a strange design. Yeah. You shut the baby inside it and you pumped at the side. Oh, I see. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Um, she was too big for that, but she was also too small for a gas mask. Oh, And wow. they had a kiddie's mask called a Mickey Mouse. Right. And uh, it was too big for her. Oh. So she had nothing. And my mother was told the only way to help would be to put uh, a piddly napkin over her face and right. let her breathe through that. Wow. And you can imagine what the child was like with a ruddy, dirty nappy shoved up the face. Yeah. Struggling. Yeah. There was my mother trying to get her daughter uh, with this napkin on her face. Yeah. My younger brother continually taking his gas mask off. <laughs> me, me looking on wondering what all the fuss was about. You know, why are we doing this? Yeah. And uh, all the time, my mother was out of a witch crying, you know, wondering what the hell she's going to do. She's yeah. in a strange village, in a strange house. Yeah. 
anyway, as I say, we came home. Mm. And uh, it was when we came home, there was no school, mm. nothing. Every, they'd all been closed. Mm. So that was the start of it. Yeah. There was one woman in our road, a young teacher, mm. who used to try and teach the kids uh, in her own front room yeah. for about an hour. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a, an hour or two a day. Yeah. And, uh, of course, with all the kids in the road and the mothers saying, yeah, I want my kid to... Uh, yeah. Uh, you can imagine. All you got was about 15 minutes of um, simple sums. Yeah. And uh, that was it, you know. <laughs> you were yeah. chucked out and someone else took a place. Wow. Um, it was as bad as that. Anyway, uh, the, the, the second time, we were evacuated without my mother when the war was declared. Yeah. Uh, we were evacuated and my brother and I were sent to a place called Moorland. Right, OK. And that was just outside Bridgewater. Yeah. About Three or four miles outside Bridgewater, yeah, in the Bristol district, you know. Um, but um, unfortunately, we were the last to be picked up and evacuated. Yeah, um, a lot of them found good homes, and uh, I did hear of one girl who actually stayed and eventually married in the area. Wow! But um, basically, we were all young kids, you know, between the ages of five. And, and and fourteen, yeah. And uh, we we were out of our depths. Yeah. Um, the the villagers didn't really want us, but mm. they had no option because the government said these kids are evacuated and they've yeah. got to be looked after. And my brother and I were eventually picked up by a couple, a middle-aged couple, mm. uh, called Manship. Yeah. And. Um, Unfortunately, Harry Manchip had lost an arm in the First World War. Yeah. The pain used to drive him crazy. Yeah. And he took the hay, he used to leather the leather, the living daylights out of us. He, he had a, a, a patch, an, an allotment patch, a kitchen garden yeah. at the side of the house. Yeah. Because he only had one arm. Yeah. He had a hand-driven plough. Okay, yeah. And... Uh, he, he actually harnessed us two to the front of a ruddy plough to pull it. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is true. Wow. Harnessed us to the plough to pull it and try and do plough the ground up. Wow. So but, what uh, education did you get while you were in Moorland? Um, while we were in Moorland, the only uh, education we got was in the local village school, which had uh, two rooms... Uh, one a larger room about the size of your parlour and the other one no bigger than an annex. Yeah. But the the woman who we was with, Mrs Manship, mm. he used to knock her about something rotten. So uh, she, she was barmy. I yeah. mean, there's no doubt about it. She was psychotic, mm. and uh, which I found out later, you know, mm. when you realise these things. Mm. Um she used to write poems and send them to my mother. And uh, then she wrote to my mother and told her, don't write to the kids anymore, they're mine now, the government have given them to me, and you're, you writing to them are only upsetting them. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It, that, that, that did a lot for me, mum. Yeah. <laughs> imagine. Um, but at the same time, um, 
my brother had a camp bed, um, which he slept on. Mm. Um, I had a, a, a sort of thin mattress on the floor mm. in the loft of the house. Mm. And um, we, we didn't have any bedclothes or anything. We just had old overcoats and things like that thrown over us, you know. That, that was your sleeping yeah. gear. My and... mother sent um, some clothes that belonged to us, sent a parcel of clothes mm. uh, to help out, and the woman promptly took them up to um, Bridgewater and sold them. Wow. And I was... I was dressed um, in what I can only assume to have been her son, who was now uh, a lorry driver and lived away from home. Mm. Um, I can only assume that um, I was wearing his cut-down cast-offs. I know the trousers I had were far too big for me and they had big patches on them. And, of course, I used to have to suffer all the... Butts and slings and arrows and yeah, the other yeah. things. You know. Um, so we, how did you, you know, how did we, you make we, up? We never had any friends. And um, how did you kind of catch up when you were eventually able to go back to school? Uh, what happened uh, there? Well, and, um, my father was given uh, compassionate leave to come down and get us back because yeah. it wasn't... Uh, the woman who, or the man who told it, it was somebody else yeah. in the village who actually got in contact with my mother and told her what was going on. Yeah. And, um, you know, we weren't being treated properly. We've been harnessed to the plough and mm. make a... There was no running water. Mm. And one of the things I had in the stone kitchen was a great big tin bath. Yeah. And it was my job with a bucket. And remember, I was all of all of seven, six, six yeah. and all. Um, it was my job to go down to the pump, fill up the bucket, bring it back up the path, and tip it into the tin bath. Yeah. And that would take quite a few trips before the bath had sufficient water in it, you know, for me. Yeah, yeah. And um, until that was done, we didn't get fed. Wow. We, we had nothing. Um, we, we were virtually slave labour. Mm. Um, Where did your dad take you back to then? Did he take well, you back to your mum? The, the thing I remember about that was being in the school and the door opened and there was my dad in his army uniform. Oh. And he, he walked in and he saw me and he started coming towards me and I remember the teacher saying, you can't come in here. You know, you're not allowed in here. Mm. And he just ignored her. Yeah. And he just came up to me and he said, where's David? And I said, he's in that room there. Mm. And uh, he just left me standing there. He walked in the room and a few moments later he came out and he was carrying David. Got him in his arms. Yeah. And then he came up to me, took hold of my hand and we just walked out the door. And all the time these two teachers were shouting and screaming at him, you can't do this, it's not allowed, blah, blah, blah. And he never said a word, not mm. to him, just to me. Where's David? Yeah. And we walked, we came out of the school, we didn't go back to the house where where we were billeted. Um, he just turned to the left and just walked up the country lane, carried by 
kid brother all the way mm. into Bridgewater. Mm. We got on a train and we went to Bristol and then we got on another train and we went to London and then we got on another train and it was all steam train then. Yeah. Got on another train to Maryland Point in West Ham where we lived. Ah. And uh, the thing I remember most about it when we got to West Ham and it, by that time it was quite late, you know, gone mm. midnight. And um, the thing I remember most about it, apart from being dog tired, yeah. was it was raining. Yeah. It was raining. Mm. And we walked home to our house, and I don't remember much after that. I know my mum was there. Yeah. And I know my man was there. But uh, I don't remember much about that now because I was just put to bed and I just went to sleep. And the next day, I was home. Yeah. And so, yeah, and, and and there was no school, there was no schooling while you no, were at home no, during the war. No, 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 no school at all. They were all, all closed up. Yeah. And uh, we had no ration books because uh, the old girl at um, what's her name, Mrs. Manchin, mm. had our ration books, junior books. Oh. We couldn't even go back to the house to get the ration books. It just took us straight from the school to the station. Yeah. And. Uh, we, uh, as I say, we they had to apply for new ration books and all the mm. rest of it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. The only thing we had with us was um, what we had to carry all the time yeah. was um, a gas mask in a, a cardboard box, yeah. which you used to have to sling over your shoulder. Your gas mask in a cardboard box, and in the, in the cardboard box was your identity card. Yeah. And but, uh, apart from that, we didn't have anything. And so what happened after the war when you went back to school? Ah, right. Um, about the last year, uh, 1944, uh, we started going back to school. You know, I told you you could go back to school. Mm. Um, we had an old retread, um, a bloke who, uh, a Yorkshireman, Mr. Elston. Yeah. Um, he'd been brought out of retirement, like a lot of other, like virtually all the male teachers yeah. were old, old, uh, what's name, retreads, bless them. Yeah. Um, Mr. Elston did not want to really teach. Mm. Um, he was too old and retired for that. Yeah. But he, I remember mostly what we did. We either he either took us down in the playground and we played football. Yeah. <laughs> or we used to drag the piano into the classroom and have a damn good old sing song. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, that, that was that was the only thing we got apart from singing and football. Well, sounds all right. Say, out of the sixty-four in the in the class, none of us passed the eleven class, and you can see why. Wow. Yeah, sixty-four in a class though. That's big. It, it, That's it, twice yeah, the size. 64. Yeah. Wow. So how how do you get from missing years of education, returning to play football and singing songs? How do you get into a plane? How how do you fly? How do you become a pilot when you haven't well, passed your I eleven was plus? In the right. Uh, you, you all you was all in something. Yeah. And my kid brother and I, we were in the scouts. Yeah. I was in scouting for over twenty odd years. In wow. The end, I, I became a scout leader. Yeah. Um, but you had. The scouts, the sea scouts, and the air scouts. Yeah. And my scout leader was a chap who'd been 
invalided out of the Air Force, an ex-pilot who crashed, mm. invalided out. He was uh, a deputy headmaster at uh, one of the local schools, and uh, he started the scout crew. Yeah. And, and he was a smashing blood. He was the sort of man who used to, in the morning, in the mornings, if he wasn't at the school, would go to West Ham Juvenile Court mm. and wait if they, and see whether there was any kids in his area who were brought up before the magistrates for something or other, mm. and then persuade the magistrates to let him take them into the scouts, you know, and help them. Yeah. He, he was that sort of guy. Yeah. And uh, it worked. We had probably four, three or four boys who had been in trouble yeah. who came into the scouts and never put a foot wrong after that. But he was an ex-pilot, and of course, being an ex-pilot, to me, he was an absolute hero. Yeah. You know, and uh, I always remember when we went up to London to Trafalgar Square after the war, mm. 1945, the victory times, and they had um, a couple of uh, enemy aircraft in Trafalgar Square, yeah. and a Spitfire and a Hurricane, and uh, a Wellington bomber, I can remember that. Wow. <laughs> they had a Wellington bomber, and you could uh, go up and inspect them, yeah. you know, and uh, walk through them and sh see how they all worked and everything, you know. That was the first time I ever actually put a foot inside an aeroplane. Wow. And, uh, you know, and I looked at the pilot and said, uh, anyway, we went into the Wellington bomber, and, uh, of course, he's in scout uniform, yeah. Uh, scout leader. Um, the aircraft were being looked after by the local air cadets. Ah, okay. You know, the ATC. Yeah. yeah. And there was a young lad up in the office end. <laughs> and Bill said, now this is where I used to be, up here. And we walked up to the cockpit, up the fuselage to the cockpit. And he said, listen to me. And uh, I used to sit, uh, this is the pilot seat here. Mm. And this young lad was standing there by the co-pilot seat. Mm. And Bill got in and he sat down in the pilot seat. And this kid said to him, I'm sorry, sir. He said, you can't do that. It's not allowed. And Bill looked at me and said, what do you mean not allowed? He said, well, you're not allowed to sit there. He said, why not? He said, well, you might break something. And Bill went ballistic. Mm. He said, break something? He said, you started flying these before you were even thought of some. Um, apart from that, it was still a time of devastation. I mean, there was bombed houses and mm. places everywhere. But yeah. there's so many tales of that time. It, it, it was a happy time. Yeah. In, uh, time because by that time, the German Luftwaffe had been utterly defeated. Yeah. And uh, we weren't being bombed anymore. We yeah. weren't being gunned anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we were starting to get back to normal, we yeah. hoped. Yeah. But anyway, um, in that time, I'd taken uh, a, a craft scholarship. Yeah. And uh, I actually passed the uh, scholarship for the West End Municipal College of Arts and Crafts. Ah. And uh, that was when I was 13. Yeah. Um, I passed that, and uh, I went to the uh, College of Art and Crafts yeah. for about nine months, something like that, if that. Yeah. And um, 
I was really enjoying it. And I was going to be, hopefully, yeah. a commercial artist. Yeah. Um, but I was still at the back of my mind, uh, and it, it came up all the time because we knew national service was going to come up. Yeah. Um, at the back of my mind, I still wanted to be the man in the aeroplane. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, it, it was a driving force for me all through my life, really, younger life, really. I was going to be the man in the aeroplane. Yeah. I hadn't quite got there yet. But it took a lot of night school yeah. and a lot of extra study. And my dear old mum, bless her, um, who used to say, you you do that and then you can do this after. You know, please yourself what you do after, but you're doing that first sort of thing. Yeah. And she made me more or less apply myself. And what did uh, you what did you study at night school? Uh, arithmetic, yeah. uh, first of all, then mathematics, yeah. English, yeah. English lit. Yeah. I, I was I was enjoying it. Yeah. I was enjoying learning. Yeah. But uh, of course, it was still basic. But yeah. uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, I was getting on all right, and the uh, what's the name? The exams that we did take, I was reasonably well. I loved geometry. Yeah, that was my favourite subject was geometry and trigonometry. Yeah, and uh, I really enjoyed that. But we never touched algebra, and that that mm. term blew back on me later on in the in the Royal Air Force. Ah. Um, when I was. Uh, 14, uh, I had a couple of jobs, first of all, that I really didn't get into. Yeah. Um, it wasn't for me, but then I found my niche yeah. uh, in motor engineering. Right. And uh, I was in uh, motor engineering at um, 15. Yeah. And uh, the you had to wait a probationary period to see whether you was all right before you were asked if you would want to be apprenticed. Right. Okay, and, yeah. And uh, when I was 15, I was called into the manager's office. The first thing you think of is, my God, what have I done wrong? Yeah, yeah. You know, because <laughs> they were gods then. Yeah. Uh, anything in a bowler hat was a god. Yeah. And, um, and you were dressed in as mister. Yeah. Otherwise, she was out on your ear hole. Yeah. Um, Called in there and he said, uh, "Was I enjoy, you know how was I getting on?" And I said, "I like the place, um, I like the job, I love the work." And apparently they'd been having a few words with some of the uh, other fitters, and, that, and they said, "Jerry yeah, never stops asking questions." Mm. Um, he said, uh, "Have you ever thought of apprenticeship?" You know, and it was like being offered the, it was like being offered a gold brick, <laughs> yeah, you know, an apprenticeship. And I said, oh, yeah, I said, I'd, I'd love it, but I'd have to talk to my dad first, you know. Mm. Anyway, um, I, I went to, uh, I had a word with my dad, and he said, yeah, of course, if that's what you want, you know, he's all for it. Mm. Um, I went back and I was apprenticed to Joseph Caden Company mm. and uh, for motor, you know, to train as a motor engineer. Yeah. And... Uh, I was there until I was 18. Well, oh. when I was 14 and a bit, I'd asked my dad if I could go into the Royal Air Force as a boy entrant. Yeah. Into the engineering side, you know. Yeah. Uh, as a start to a Royal Air Force career. Yeah. Well, he'd recently, of course, only just come back from the sharp end of a war. Yeah. 
and no way was he going to let me go into the military of any kind. No. Uh, for as long as he could possibly stop it. Yeah. I didn't know what his motive... I, I thought he was being rotten then, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's not until you're a dad yourself, you realise just how much thought he'd given it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he'd seen things that he didn't want me to see. Yeah. But uh, anyway, when I was 18 and due for national service, there was nothing he could do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I, I uh, passed all the physicals and everything, you know, yeah. to go into service. I asked for the Royal Air Force, and yeah. I got it. Wow. And um, uh, once I was in the Royal Air Force, the following day that I was brought into the Royal Air Force, I uh, applied as a regular, you know, I wanted to stay. I wanted to be a colours man. Right. I wanted a career. Yeah, yeah. In the Air Force. Yeah. And um, it was my gate to flying. Wow. But, um, yeah, it, it, it was great. How, um, how long did it take you to learn to fly? So you were 18 when you joined. How old were you when you first got behind the controls? When I finally... Uh, I'd already flown uh, half an hour in yeah. the Air Scouts. Right. Um, uh, at the controls, I've got half an hour's uh, flying in, which actually is quite a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't sound a lot, but you do an awful lot in uh, half an hour. Yeah. Um, but I had it, I had a logbook with that in it. Yeah. And um, I applied for air crew, but um, first of all, you had to get your, you know, get yourself known in the air force. Yeah. You had to do your job. Um, they wanted to make me an armourer. Right. And I argued the point with the officer on the uh, selection committee. I said, why are you asking me to be an armourer when I'm already apprenticed as an engineer? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, well, we need armourers. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, but you need engineers as well. <laughs> anyway, I won the day. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, and um, he, he saw, you know, he didn't accept my argument that mm. it was a, a waste of an apprenticeship. Mm. And um, he said, are you prepared to transfer your tr apprenticeship to the Royal Air Force? And I said, yes, of course, you know. Mm. Um, of course I would. So I was transferred, my, my indentures were transferred to the Royal Air Force, which caused a rather funny situation. Mm -hmm. One, uh, the Royal Air Force took responsibility for my training yeah. in my apprenticeship. And two, my father was no longer my legal guardian. Oh, wow. Wow. I don't know who thought this one up, but yeah. this is the situation as it was. My father was my legal guardian at the time to the age of 21. Right. Oh. Well, that was the age then, yeah. 21, not 18. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I was only 18 at the time. Right. So I, I, he, he would be my legal guardian for the next three years. Right. But. In transferring my indentures to the Royal Air Force, they literally became my legal guardians. Blimey. Wow. But we was on the 
motor transport side of the uh, of that place, uh, not in the uh, plant transport. The the plant consisted of uh, uh, bulldozers, drag lines, all this sort of thing, you know. Um, but anyway, we were transferred to the motor workshops, the ordinary trucks and cars sort of thing. But also, it was a specialised uh, transport division because we had to carry to the different destinations where they were wanted, we had to carry this plant. Ah, okay. And at the age of 18 Mm. and 19 and 20, I was actually transporting uh, this sort of material to different sites all over the country, Mm. and sometimes my loads would go up to 120 tonnes. Wow. Uh, they would also come to uh, the widest one we took was 11 feet wide. Right, blimey. Well, the only people in the country that used to move loads like that were specialist civil companies like Pickford's yeah. or White House Road Services. Yeah. And um, the, 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 they couldn't believe that their drivers uh, would, would be second men for about four or five years before they even got behind a wheel, yeah. you know, to uh, claim uh, to to move these heavy loads, and there am I at eighteen, yeah. doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> but um, and so were the others. But anyway, that's what we were trained, and why they did it was because these loads were so big and clumsy and heavy, mm. and uh, they thought it was best to have fitters who were also drivers. Right. So in in my discharge book, I've got trade ratings that stretch from one side of the uh, page to the other. Right. You know, <laughs> saying that I was a fitter, driver, yeah. heavy duty, specialised, blah, 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 you know. Wow. It went on and on. So did you, and, so uh, when you it, served out your apprenticeship, did that then put you in a position to to switch over to becoming a pilot? Um, it didn't help as much because that, that was ground. Right. But it did give you um, a start to say, yeah, I've had engineering training, Yeah. which can easily be applied to flying. Yeah. Well, I, I applied for uh, air crew, and I, I'm afraid I wasn't accepted. <gasps> No. And uh, that was a hell of a disappointment to me. Yeah. And the reason that I didn't get accepted was I couldn't do algebra. Ah. Oh, no. Yeah. It was educational. I'd never studied algebra. Right. So, um, you know, they said, well, do you think you can, you know, learn algebra or... uh, be proficient in algebra in six months. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll give it a damn good try. You know, yeah. There's no way I'm going to let a thing like that let me down. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, I was put on probation for, uh, you know, for a, a, a re-interview in six months' time. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was the time of the Cold War and there was an awful lot of work to be done by our place, you know, the Everall Construction Branch. And um, I didn't get the chance to 
study algebra the way I wanted to. No. Because I was out on the road all the time. Yeah. So uh, I'm afraid that went by the book. Hmm. Well, in the it, when when my time was nearly up, um, I'd met a girl, hmm. and to be quite honest, and I've always maintained this, to be a service wife, yeah, you have to be a very very special kind of woman. Hmm. You've you've got to put up with everything. The normal saying was that you don't, the wives don't marry the service. That was a lie. Right. The wives do marry the service in as much as uh, when their husband is told he's going to some place, they have to go with him. Yeah, yeah. Right. And if they have a service accommodation, then it's inspected by service personnel to make sure it's up to scratch all the time. Yeah. And... Uh, so it takes a special lady. My my flight sergeant, flight flight sergeant Dyson, he'd been all around the world during the war with the Air Force, you know, two rows of fruit salad, beat, seen it all, done it all. And he had four children, hmm. and not one of them was born in this country. Wow, blimey. Not one. Yeah. They were either born in Germany, Singapore, Hong Kong, yeah. Middle East, yeah, you know, all different places where he'd been posted, yeah, and uh, it, it, it was that sort of time, yeah, but those sort of times. But anyway, I never got the chance to study algebra at the uh, point where they wanted me to. So when my time was up, I came out. Right, I, I wanted to marry this girl. She would never have fitted in as a service wife, mm. so I had to make a judgment. Yeah. And thank God it was the best judgment I've ever made in my life. I came out, yeah. I married my girl. Lovely. I never regretted a day of it. No. And I wish she was still here. Oh, I know. But we had 56 years together, and that was great. Yeah. But um, I never lost this longing to fly. Yeah. So if I couldn't fly in the Air Force, I'd fly in Civil Street, and that's exactly what I did. Right. This is what amazing. I didn't know, <laughs> what I didn't know at the time was that all the time I was flying, every minute I had in the air, my wife was worrying herself sick. Oh, yeah. She was not a flying person. And it wasn't until 20 years of marriage, Yeah. one day I said to her, Let's go down to the Black Bush. I said, no, I'll put in uh, a quick half hour or so, you know. Yeah. Because I, I had to fly five minutes, a minimum of five hours a year yeah. to maintain my licence. Yeah. So uh, I said, go down that half hour, you know. Yeah. So anyway, we went down to Black Bush. It was a lovely summer day. Yeah. And there was a spare aircraft there, a two-seater. So I said, well, it shouldn't be long. Mm. And right out of the blue, she said, can I come with you? And I, I couldn't believe it. It took me 20 years to, yeah. get her to say wow. that. Yeah. But she said, can I come with you? And I said, of course you can. Anyway, I put her in the aircraft. We got in and um, went through the procedures, got got round, took off. And as we were taking off, she was holding the top of my right arm. 
Right. <laughs> made, it, made it a bit awkward trying to control the thing, but yeah. But she was gripping my arm. Yeah. And as we were climbing out, I, I, I sort of looked over to the right. I said, "That's Redding over there, love." Yeah. And, and with a quick look of her, she went, <laughs> "Oh yeah." <laughs> but that was the first time, anyway. After oh. about twenty minutes, half hour, I realised she still hadn't let go of my arm. Yeah. Um. I thought, no, enough's enough. I've got her up. That's the main thing. You know, this will do. Yeah. So I turned back and we came back to Blackbush and I landed, put the plane away, came home. And um, when I undressed that night, I had a perfect set of bruises on my top. Breaking <laughs> grip so hard. Yeah. Um... But after that, she used to fly with me quite often. You know, if I had uh, a day off from work or something like that. So, and uh, at the time, I was um, running the uh, workshops at Maidenhead for a, a firm that worked for a Ford Motor Company. So did you... Cotton College, you know, transporting the vehicles about on those big, uh, uh... what's that, car transporters. So... Like a fleet of those to look after. So did you, uh, did you study for a private pilot's licence once you left the RAF? Is that how it worked? Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, um, wow. It was. That's, and that's a lot. Right. That's a huge amount of. That's a huge amount of study. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. But uh, you know, I'd got to the point where I had to do it there and then, or it'd never get done. Mm. I love it. And normally, you you have to do. According to the schedules, you have to do 42 and a half hours flying mm. under instruction. Yeah. Right? Before you're considered proficient enough to go for a flying test. Yeah. The, the general flying test, which yeah. is quite, quite concise, you know, quite comprehensive. Um, normally, if you have the aptitude to control in three axes, which yeah. is flying. Yeah. If you're driving a car, you're only driving in two axes. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. That's left and right or yeah. straight ahead. Yeah, you can't go up and down. Yeah. No, you don't go up and down. <laughs> you check on hills. You hope not. We're yeah. in contact all the time. Yeah, yeah. With an aircraft, you, you've got three axes and you need to control, perfect control in all three. Yeah. I have a slight distinction. I, I don't know whether it was uh, meant as an insult or a compliment, but it worked out right. Yeah. Piloting ability above average. Oh, nice. <laughs> Navigation below average. <laughs> so that, that worked out very nicely. What it meant was I was reasonable. reasonable. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess... Uh, after that, you know, in in my 50 years of flying, I, I think I became reasonably competent. <laughs> it, uh, and, uh, I, I even taught some other people. Wow. You told me about landing at Newmarket, is that right? Oh, yes, landing at Newmarket in a false landing with a broken yeah. oil pipe, yeah. Yeah. And I had this idiot steward saying, did you just land that plane? And I thought, well, you know I did, you must have been watching. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I had other problems as well, uh, you know, but I overcome them. But the point was that from the age of three and a half, I actually attained what I was going to do. Yeah. And that's the question that I wanted to ask you, I guess, if you had advice for other people. Because you said, you know, you were 
Well, I mean, bloody, yeah. You overcame enormous odds in oh, so many ways. Yeah. What is it? On a daily basis. I always wanted to be one step ahead of the opposition, put it that way. Yeah. But you, and, uh, but you said, like, you wanted to be a pilot when you were three and you achieved that, and, and you always had a pen in your hand or a pencil and, oh, yeah. and you're an artist. Yeah. So yeah. What, what is it about you or what advice would you give to people? Like, what's put you in good stead? My advice is find out as early as possible you can't lay out a, a definite year. I was lucky. Mine was only three and a half years old. Mm. But as early as possible, set your mind to what you want to do with your life. Mm. And uh, if you're not uh, able to attain a higher education, which so much stories put on, I've always had this battle between artisans and academics. Mm. The academic is always the winner. Yeah. Because people think it's wonderful. But without the artisan, the academic can't function. Yeah. The academic thinks about it. The artisan actually puts it into hard metal or whatever. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, they, they, they complement each other. Neither can do without each other. Yeah. And and like you say, actually, you're... Um... I don't know, by dint of birth, if you were born somewhere else or at a different time or to a different family, you may have gone through an, an academic system that was very different. Um, um, I have never heard of anyone in my era, mm. even if they'd had the education, mm. of actually going to university. Ah. They went to grammar schools, like yeah. my kid brother. Yeah. He made grammar school, but he never made university. Ah. Right. But as you say, you're hugely capable and love learning and have talent. And it was a question of putting your mind to it and making it happen. Um, I once had an old flight sergeant and he gave me a maxim which I've tried to follow all through my life mm. and the different things I've done. Mm. And that was... There is no such thing as a problem, only a solution that you haven't found to a situation you find yourself in. Mm. Well, I think I just, well, like you said, you believe in sharing and I'm just really, I feel really privileged that you've shared your story with me today and other people well, will get to hear it. Yeah, Tony, the, the, when I was born, as I say, in poverty, mm. or not quite poverty, but as near as you can get to it, mm. everybody shared everything. Yeah. One of my mother's favourite sayings later on in life was, when she was a girl, in the summer in Ashland Road, you could leave all your doors open and let a bit of air pass through the house. Mm. You leave, And nobody ever went in there and stole anything from you. I said, Mum, you never had anything to steal. <laughs> None of you. <laughs> you know, but it was the community spirit that was so different. Yeah. The only emergence of seen was friendly societies. Without them, we wouldn't have been able to exist. Yeah. And we certainly wouldn't have been able to better things. If you went to see a doctor... Mm. You had to pay, didn't money, you? You paid yeah. on the visit. Yeah. Now, an adult going to see a doctor... 
Yeah. It could be as much as nine pence to a shilling. Yeah. Right, to see a doctor. Yeah. Every visit, not just the, uh, a course, but every visit. For a child, it would be somewhere around about four or six pence. And I think... Now, that was a lot of money. Yeah, and I think and... a lot of people don't know this, that they forget or they they don't realise that we did used to have to pay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that went on till 1947. Yeah. Now, if it hadn't have been for the friendly societies, we couldn't have survived because what we had was what was known as a retained doctor. Mm. And what that meant was that the doctor, if, if, if you was ill or you had to see a doctor, you went down there, and instead of paying the ninepence or a shilling, whatever it was, you only paid about sixpence. Yeah. For a child, it would only be three or four pence. Yeah. At the end of the financial year, the doctor would send in uh, a total of all the people he'd seen, mm. uh, and uh, his, uh, that sum would be extracted from his uh, normal file, you know, mm. his uh, normal amount. And the outstanding amount that he would have had was paid for by the lodge. Yeah. My mother and father bought their first two houses well after the war, mm. but the first house and the second house that they bought was with loans from the odd fellows. Ah, okay. Because they wouldn't have been able to afford them from a bank or a building no. society. No. It's... There's just so much. There's so much in here that I'm sure we'll end up talking it's, again, it's Terry. A lifetime it's amazing. If there's any way I can help you, don't hesitate to ring. Well, I've got your number now, Terry. <laughs> yeah, well. Thank you for listening to University Challenged with me, Tony Kent, and my very, very special guest, Terry Butcher. If you enjoyed this episode or if you know someone that you think might enjoy it, please give it a share. I'll be back with you soon with a new guest. <laughs>